0: Welcome to episode 19 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host Steve Sadman is back from Japan. Episode 19 focuses on the security implications of the coronavirus, the Afghanistan peace talks, and Turkey invoking NATO's Article 4. Our interviews today feature emerging scholar, Rachel Babbins, a cyber threat intelligence analyst at a major Canadian bank. And just ahead of International Women's Day, Our feature interview is with Wise
1: France President Joanna Moering and Wise Canada's Vice Chair Dr. Gail Rivard-Pichet.
0: Welcome back. You were in Japan. I take it you were not one of the Canadians stuck on the Diamond Princess cruise ship.
2: No, but on our way out, we were asked that question. <laughs> and I was like, is this is, this your, this is your screening process? Because I could be lying about it. So yeah, while I was there, a part of an effort by the Japanese government, they send over groups of students to Japan. And for some reason, they wanted a chaperone. And so I got to hang out with a bunch of cool kids from both uh, Carleton and Ottawa, and also ultimately a group of uh, students from University of Toronto as well. And so we went to Tokyo, and then we went north of Tokyo to Sendai, and then the students went off to their homestays, where they got to spend basically two days with Japanese families and learn about their culture, their practices. It apparently involved lots of sake, uh, and that was definitely my experience when I visited one of the families that was hosting one of the kids. uh, I learned that in that region, the tradition is you don't get just one cup of sake, you need to have to drink in pairs, and this was at 10.30 (laughs) in the morning. So I I got a, a Nice, juicy start uh, a couple weeks ago. But it was a great time. It was interesting to be near the disease zone of China at the time that this thing was starting to blow up. And I was very nervous that I might have to stay in Japan longer than I planned. Or I might be get uh, to Trenton, which is, I guess, where we're quarantining various Canadians.
0: Yeah, I think that people have left Trenton by now. But you're right. uh, There was medical personnel helping escort Canadians back from Wuhan and then at CFB Trenton there was a quarantine for 14 days for these Canadians returning home. So we'll see how that develops. That I think that part is is done but there might be a role still for the Canadian Armed Forces if we you know, continue to repatriate Canadians home.
2: So this uh, pandemic had not only implications for my travel but it's had implications for regional security issues in the Pacific where the United States and South South Korea have decided not to hold a major exercise and they will not be holding any exercises anytime in the near future. And there's a variety of American ships that are going to stay at sea until they're certain that their sailors are not sick and that they're probably also more certain that they're not going to land in some port that is one of the vectors for the disease. So this is going to really change sort of the operational tempo and of not just the American forces of the region, but all the forces in the region. I can't imagine the Chinese Navy is, is doing too much these days either. And so you might probably see a slowdown in all kinds of exercises and deployments in the Asia-Pacific region while this disease sort of spreads.
0: And the, these measures, the U.S. Navy ships uh, self-quarantining and the annual military exercises being put on hold, I understand, was also partly a result of one service member testing positive in South Korea amongst the 28,500 service members who are stationed there.
2: That's right. That uh, as the disease broke out of China, one of the places it's popped most energetically has been South Korea. There was one church that apparently had a lot of people who came down with it. And so, given how many Americans there are based in South Korea, it was inevitable that a, a soldier would, would catch it. And so, they're, they've they been trying to figure out how to avoid that, but they haven't. And so, uh, we're going to see more of this, given the spread of American troops around the world. Uh, the, I guess the good news that the, that the United States has bad relations with Iran is that at least that's not going to be one way in which Americans and others are going to get the disease since we had the deputy health minister display visible symptoms while on TV, mm. and now we have a number of uh, Iranian leaders as well as other folks in Iran. I think this is a good time for us to avoid the NATO Defense College since Italy seems to be having a particularly severe outbreak of this disease. I guess the the big thing is, is that it's ultimately going to get out. I think the epidemiologists have agreed that it's not going to get contained, that we're all going to get exposed to it. But the focus right now, as I understand it, is these quarantines are aimed at slowing the the spread of it so that way the hospitals can catch up to it and deal with the most severe cases in dribbles and drabs rather than having a flood of people with the most severe symptoms. The good news is that most people don't die from this, and I think the estimates of the, of the mortality rate will go down. As we have a better count of the number of people who've been exposed to it, the challenge has been that we don't have really good numbers on that, and so looks like a higher death rate because we only have captured the numbers of people who have visible symptoms. But as we get a better set of numbers, it'll turn out that this is not as fatal as it, as it appears to be But it's still going to be very problematic because there's a large number of people in the world who are vulnerable to these kinds of respiratory diseases. And so if you have a weak immune system, if you already have problems with your lungs, then this is going to be really problematic. Even if it's not going to be as bad as as people fear, it's still not going to be good.
0: And it might impact our own travel as well. So I know thousands of political scientists are descending onto Honolulu for the International Studies Association annual conference. And there were worries that the event might might be canceled because of COVID-19, or it's still going on.
2: And the irony of that is that one of the reasons to have in Hawaii was to be able to include more people from Asia in this uh, conference. Often this conference takes place in the East Coast of the United States or in Canada. And so to put it out in Honolulu was a way to to try to improve the. The representation from Asia, but I doubt that many people from Asian countries are going to go to the ISA, whether it's canceled or not, because their own countries are facing their own quarantines. I still have my tickets. I'm still planning on going, but the organization itself has to figure out the insurance costs of all of this and whether they can afford to cancel the conference.
0: Well, I'm going to, so we can even record a Battle Rhythm podcast while there.
2: Uh, Well, let's do that, but (laughs) we'll try to make sure that we don't include any judgments of what political scientists look like on the beach, because nobody wants to see that. (laughs) Oh, my
0: God. I don't even (laughs) want to think about
2: that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the constant themes of our conversations here has been NATO, and NATO got some action this week where we had a NATO ally lost over 30 soldiers in Syria. When we're talking about Turkey, uh, Turkey, when it invaded Syria to try to thwart the Kurds there, it put itself directly in harm's way with the Russians and the Syrians. And now the Turkish troops are engaged in combat with the Syrians and with the Russians, and they've looked to NATO for support. And what is NATO doing about that?
0: Well, we saw Turkey invoke Article 4. So that sort of triggered a process by which the Secretary General called an emergency meeting. And so that was held last week. You mentioned that the Turkish soldiers that were lost recently, but... In the past couple of months, over 50 soldiers have been have been lost, and I think domestically too that the situation is becoming more and more untenable as Turks grow impatient with the refugees back home. So there are several reasons for why right now is a particularly bad time for Turkey, and uh, this pushed Turkey to once again invoke Article 4. We tend to talk a lot about Article 5. That's the most famous article of the the washington treaty it's the collective self-defense clause but article four even though it's invoked uh, more frequently is less well-known. So maybe it's worth going into those those details a little bit. It just means being able to consult on an issue. So the particular country invoking Article 4 will seek consultations with fellow allies and solicit their opinion on matters of territorial integrity, political independence, or security, uh, because that uh, party to the alliance feels threatened. And so after that, we can expect a number of things. Uh, Article 4 is just as vague as Article 5 in, in terms of what mm-hmm. allies may be called upon to do. So you can see anything from a joint statement to a decision. But in this case, it's just been basically uh, the Secretary General announcing NATO solidarity with Turkey and also urging Russia and the Assad regime to stop all their attacks and support UN-led efforts to find a solution in the region. So we've not seen much we've seen a, a demonstration of solidarity but that stops short of concerted nato action in support of of turkey although you know us or european assets in the region might be increasing their support for for turkey article 4 has been invoked 6 times five mm. times by Turkey. I think that's huh.
2: interesting. The only other
0: time it's been uh, invoked was by Poland in 2014.
2: That's in the crazy. aftermath of Crimea, I guess?
0: Yes, exactly.
2: I, I think that it makes sense for Turkey to consult, but I don't think they're going to have a friendly environment there because I think people are very upset at Turkey. And the fact that Turkey has threatened to um, uh, release more refugees to flee to Europe is as a, as a bargaining chip has gotten certainly Angela Merkel upset about it. That While it may be the case that the Turkey has a right to, to invoke Article four for and to get consultation, I think using the possibility of, of turning the tap on and sending more refugees is an overreach by them and is, is likely to antagonize rather than get the result they want. Yes, Turkey has a lot of leverage because nobody in Europe wants more refugees. But that's a very, very blunt threat, and it's it's going to lead to backlash. I don't think there's going to be too many Europeans who are going to be all that fussed if if Turkey faces more problems in Syria as it is. So that was a the move that the Turks made in Syria in the first place was problematic from the standpoint of undermining the Kurds, which were one of the few forces that was really confronting ISIS successfully. Made things more complicated for everybody. So the level of political capital Turkey has in Europe has, has been very low for quite some time and is probably at its lowest ebb and then threatening to let refugees flow it is certainly not going to make many friends in, in, in Europe. So I don't really expect Turkey to get much from this besides a few words of support from NATO. One thing to keep in mind is that all, our old f- favorite Article 5, there's, uh, as, as you reminded us, I think, in previous podcasts, Article 6 restricts Article 5 to Europe, and the North Atlantic region. And so f allies get into trouble in other parts of the world. If they get attacked in other parts of the world, it doesn't count for Article 5. And Syria is not part of Europe. So I think that the Europeans will say, you know, you've got your problems here and we'll help you out in some ways, but this is not going to count as an attack upon all because it's not part of Europe.
0: And what's really concerning, you mentioned the threat by Erdogan about like opening the borders and left, letting their refugees flow back into Europe is that we're seeing images that are quite reminiscent of the height of the the refugee crisis in 2015, 2016. So images of police using tear gas in Greece to stop the migrants, and we're just likely to see more and more of that, because you mentioned the threat, but it seems to me that Erdogan has indeed carried this out. He's opened the borders and has encouraged that movement.
2: Yeah, the Syrian uh, front has always been a a pit of despair, and it's not looking any better, and it's now looking really bad for Turkey. And this was somewhat foreseeable that Turkey involved there was not going to be a good news story for Turkey. So, it's going on, the violence is continuing, it's just less central to uh, North American news because we're not as directly involved as we once were.
0: Yeah, we're not. Greece are Bulgaria in this case
2: either. <laughs> yes, indeed. Speaking of long wars, forever wars, one of them might be coming to an end. This weekend was another announcement of a U.S.-Taliban deal, the exchange of captives and that the United States was ultimately agreeing to leave within a very short period of time, despite the fact that the Afghan government wasn't really consulted. So is this deal holding up or have we already moved beyond it?
0: It's definitely not the end but a beginning i think uh so the the deal that was struck uh, over the weekend in, in doha plans for U.S. troop withdrawals. But uh, at the same time, this is a deal where talks with the Afghan government haven't even begun. So how can you hope that a deal will really uh, lead to a peace agreement or even a ceasefire at the very least uh, without having the Afghan government at the table? So this was really just between the U.S. and the Taliban. And the Taliban were pledging a significant reduction in violence, so not even a ceasefire. And then the U.S. were promising you know, a first stage of troop withdrawals from Afghanistan. Uh, the other things that the U.S. put on the table were a review of sanctions. So that would be working through the U.N. to see if some sanctions could be lifted. The release of Taliban prisoners, which has been very controversial, especially given the absence of the Afghan government at the negotiating table. And also there are longer term ramifications, you know, when you're negotiating with an actor like the Taliban. There are many things that have been accomplished maybe in the, in the last 18 years. I'm thinking specifically about women's rights that maybe sort of bargained away in the process so that the Taliban have not grown less ultra-conservative uh, with time.
2: Yes, I think that represents, on the part of the Trump administration, a desire to just to get out and wash their hands of it. And they don't really care about the actual government that gets formed in the aftermath. Usually these kinds of negotiations for ending a protracted conflict involve all kinds of measures to incorporate a lot of actors, so that way each one has some degree of confidence that they're not going to become victimized by the other actors. And this agreement thus far has none of that in it. It has none of the institutional assurances. It has none of the power sharing or power dividing or, or whatever design that we often try to figure out. It has none of that stuff built into it. It's really just an exit strategy by the United States. Yes, this is it's time for the United States to end some of these forever wars, but it's ultimately going to betray the Afghan people. And so anything that the United States did or the alliance did to support women and girls, that's ephemeral. That's going to be gone if we leave in a way that doesn't build an intent, any kind of political protections for these other groups. If it's just selling out the Afghans to get out, well then, yeah, it's going to return to something like what it was before we arrived in 2001, which is an incredibly repressive regime that's brutal to women and girls.
0: Speaking of of 2001, I think what is The most discouraging to witness as part of these conversations surrounding the the peace deal that was struck over the weekend is that the pledge that the Americans are looking for from the Taliban essentially is the same the same thing as the ultimatum that was voiced in 2001. It's to prevent al-Qaeda, another group, from staging terrorist attacks on the U.S. and its allies from Afghanistan. And so to hear the same type of demands in 2020 and to present this as some kind of peace deal victory is sort of baffling.
2: Yes. It, it's, well, it's not so much baffling as, as it is depressing because mm-hmm. it's understandable to see this government want to move on. I think that the appetite for this war has, has long past. It's, it's been very deceptive and dishonest to not acknowledge that what's happening here would be to give up on all the other goals that were developed over the course of time, and that indeed they are selling out the Afghan people. Uh, the only way to avoid selling out the Afghan people is to have the Afghan government involved in the negotiations and to make sure that the negotiations are developed in a way that gives the current people of Afghanistan some voice in the process and some ways to limit the harm that can be done if we take a look at other places. When we all wanted to get out of Bosnia, we wanted a peace accords in Bosnia, the Dayton Accords was an agreement that is far from perfect. It's a lousy basis for government, but what it did do was it provided each group some hands on the wheel so that way we made it hard to make progress on changing the place for the better, but it also made it hard for the various actors to do harm to others. So yes, the Serbs, the Bosnian Serbs have not allowed the government to become a better, more successful enterprise, but it's also limited the ability for the Bosnian Serbs or the Bosnian Muslims or Bosnian Croats, whoever you want to talk about, from engaging in really harmful efforts uh, aimed at the other communities, there's a, there was a real agreement there that was imposed from outside, which had outside guarantees. None of that work is being done this time around. And I think that's a real problem. Not surprising, but a real problem.
0: Yeah, there's, there's really nothing other than the troop withdrawals that both parties want, and this weak pledge of not working with terrorist organizations uh, like Al-Qaeda. There isn't much, I, I don't think, in this peace deal. So we'll see now the next stage, I suppose, is that intra-Afghan negotiation process. And we'll see whether the Taliban, who doesn't even recognize the Afghan government as the legitimate government of Afghanistan, if they can work together now on on really hashing out a real ceasefire and eventually a peace agreement. I'm not very optimistic.
2: No, you should not be optimistic. Well, that's pretty depressing. So... (laughs) Uh, the good news is we've got some interesting events coming up. First of all, we're gonna to get together later this week in Queens because Weiss Queens women in International Security Queens is having a conference where both you and I are speaking along with Jody Thomas, the Deputy Minister and Mercedes Stevenson and a bunch of other interesting folks. so we'll actually get to hang out in person for a change in your hometown and then I know and, and then next week, CDSN is coming to Toronto. The capstone seminar that we've been talking about for much time is happening. And so one of our interviews today that are... Is with Rachel Babbins, one of our participants in the capstone. There's still room for people who want to register. They can go to our website, uh, search for CDSN capstone. Uh, the idea of this event is to bring together the best presenters from the conferences across Canada from the last year. One of the things the CDSN is trying to do is to try to highlight the efforts of our partners because we have all these different conferences over each year, but we have a big country and it means that people have limited access to this stuff. So by having this event in Toronto at the Canadian Forces College, We hope to give lots more people a chance to hear these sharp people. And they tend to be a young, diverse crowd of people. Uh, So I'll be in Toronto next week for that event. It'll be streamed. Again, that information is going to be on our website, the CDSN website, and we will be having interviews with some of these people for the next several months on our podcast. So there's lots of different ways to get access to the interesting people who are presenting that at the capstone. But that's our big event coming up. I also do want to mention that I was just in Calgary at the Civ Mill workshop we had organized by JC, where we were trying to design the next major survey of the Canadian public about the Canadian Armed Forces and about Canadian defense policy. Uh, and that was a great event.
0: Yeah, JC had an opportunity to talk a little bit about the workshop when he co-hosted last time. Obviously, the workshop hadn't taken place, but it's good to see that it was a success. And I couldn't tell from your pictures because I only saw pictures of you skiing.
2: (laughs) Priorities. (laughs) (laughs) I I did post pictures of of the folks at the workshop, but the pictures of the scheme were prettier. Yes, yes, exactly.
0: And you mentioned the International Women's Day event this weekend organized by Wise Queens. But the feature interview this week is with different members of the Wise Canada and Wise France team, uh, because Wise France was inaugurated fairly recently, and there was a joint event hosted by the Canadian Embassy in France, held in Paris, which took place in October. So the interview that we have today is a conversation between me, a board member from WISE Canada, and the founder of WISE France.
2: Excellent. There will be no peeve this week because I just spent the weekend skiing and cleaning one day with Roland Paris, so I can't really complain about anything uh, these days. Life is good as long as our various conferences aren't canceled. Fair enough. But we're always looking for more questions about Canadian defense issues or defense and security issues writ large. So you can send them to us at either Steph's Twitter handle, SVH Lecky, or my Twitter handle, SMS Sadman, or at cdsnrcds. We're easy to find on the internet, so if you've got questions for us, please hit us up. We're definitely looking to get more feedback from our listeners, and we're definitely interested in answering the questions you have. And it was good to talk to you, Stephanie. I think the next podcast, I'm going to have to find our guest host, because you're going to be busy doing stuff on your own. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Steph. I'm glad to be in the same country as you again, and I'll be in the same city with you soon.
0: Absolutely. It's good to talk to you, too, Steve, and safe travels to Kingston, and thank you for (laughs) Allowing me a vacation on episode 20.
2: Not a problem. As always, everybody wash your hands. <laughs> Today we're talking with Rachel Babbins of the University of Toronto. She presented a talk last spring at the Defense and Security Foresight Group on Hidden, a study of the Islamic State's internet controls aimed at thwarting Western media metadata collection efforts. That's a lot of words. So tell us what you talked about and why we should care about it.
3: For sure. So last year I presented a paper that I had wrote that looked at how ISIS changed their recruitment and uh, propaganda strategies after the public gained awareness of global intelligence collection programs. So particularly following the Snowden disclosures. So I looked Mm -hmm. at this awareness that, um, you know, the U.S. and others were using social media to collect metadata and using that metadata to inform their intelligence, how that affected ISIS and what was once the most, I would say, the most technologically advanced cyber group, the most social media friendly cyber group you could ever Mm -hmm. imagine, suddenly became a group that was really hard to find. And it affected their ability to recruit and ability to, uh, have, you know, propaganda of what they were
2: doing. I guess the question then is we have this constant war with ISIS, them adjusting to uh, what we're doing, we're adjusting to what they're doing. So do you find that they're particularly adept at this or do we find that, that the West is actually, can actually get inside their decision decision loop and, and move pretty quickly to deal with their innovations?
3: So they've innovated in the sense that, um, you know they've rolled back they've moved a lot of their communication to the dark net a lot of it was there before but not their public facing recruiting methods so mm-hmm. you know by switching to the dark net and having to basically know someone who can invite you to the proper web address where you can get onto this forum that most likely has some sort of password to lock like it definitely harms their ability to attract new followers but then from the perspective um, intelligence agencies, which is something I go into more in my research, is this unexpected dual effect of these Snowden disclosures and the fact that they had rolled back their presence. It made it much harder for intelligence agencies to track them because, you know, when you're posting something on Facebook, there was a post on Facebook that had ISIS's headquarters and an alert came out that like 22 hours later, the US was able to use that post to bomb that headquarters. When you're rolling that back to the dark web, it's a lot harder definitely for the US to find the U.S. and other governments to find and um, attack but I mean then again looking at ISIS as it is now I would say that a lot of their ability to like roll back there a lot of their like they've obviously been suffering over the past few years and that is a large part due to the forces on the ground as well as the U.S. and um, other intelligence agencies adapting to the damage that was caused by the Snowden disclosures and by this rollback of ISIS.
2: And I guess the question that I some of our listeners might be wondering about is, how do you actually do the research? What What is your data? Are you interviewing people? Uh, what's your process?
3: Yeah, so that's a question I get a lot. <laughs> It was very challenging. When yeah. I first started, I literally um, like marched into my university and asked if there was any way that I could get access to ISIS materials. And the librarian looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> I was lucky at the time to have a professor who was teaching me another course on counterterrorism and the rule of law, and she herself mm-hmm. was lawyer. Before I began my research I had to seek out her legal advice just to be crystal clear that I wasn't breaking any laws by you know digging around and
2: not even getting
3: this information but looking for this information openly on the internet. She advised me and I followed what she said which was to get express written permission from the professor I was working with at the time that all of this was of course. The way that I found a lot of my research was that some materials, I was lucky um, other researchers had looked at them before um, and I was able to rely on secondary research. And in other cases, um, I was able to find translated documents online.
2: So what are you working on now?
3: Um, So I'm currently working at a bank, working more in the cyberspace, Uh, so looking at cyber threat intelligence and how it impacts Canadian financial sector assets. I'm trying to get more technical with my cyber expertise. So I'm going after my CISSP certification, which is like an overview of all of the cybersecurity domains so that I can and then I'm hoping to continue working in the academic space, coming to conferences such as the one that you're putting on, and keep writing papers about the intersection of cybersecurity and counterterrorism.
2: Well, that's excellent. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Rachel Babbins is one of our capstone scholars. She's going to be presenting her work in Toronto at the Canadian Forces College on March 10th. You can find registration information by searching for CDSN capstone. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Or you could go to our webpage at www.cdsn-rcds.com. She is one of several scholars from across Canada we're highlighting and as you can see, these scholars are doing really interesting work that's very policy relevant and on pushing our understanding of the threats facing Canada and how to respond to it.
4: My name is Johanna Muring, and I'm the president of WISE
5: France. Hi, my name is Gaëlle Rivard-Pichet and I'm the vice chair of Women International Security
1: Canada. We're sitting here in Paris for a special edition of Battle Rhythm. It's uh, shortly after the inauguration of WISE France. So WISE stands for Women in International Security, and I'm with two international security experts who have a role respectively in WISE France and WISE Canada, so it's really a pleasure to have a discussion about closer collaboration between the two organizations and about women's leadership in the field of international security. So we'll start with uh, you Joanna. As you know, West Canada has been around for over a decade now and we were so thrilled to see Wise France inaugurated in 2019. Why do you think 2019 was the year?
4: Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephanie, to have me on your podcast. Well, why is 2019 such a good year? Well, it's mostly linked with personal reasons. I was working uh, in London for two years and there I rediscovered WISE in the form of WISE UK. And I was really depressed to see that there was absolutely nothing going on in France. So I decided when moving back to Paris, it would be time to open a WISE affiliate. And it worked wonderfully well. We had an amazing uh, launch. It is as if people were actually waiting for us to appear on the scene. We had uh, the marinage, so the sort of patronage of the French uh, Minister of the Armed Forces. We were at the Assemblée Nationale, so we were given a wonderful welcome.
1: Excellent, and today was also a really nice welcome at the Canadian Embassy here in Paris. Uh, I'm going to turn to Gaël now to ask what happened today here. So today we had the pleasure to be hosted by
5: the Canadian uh, Embassy in Paris for a workshop on the role of association in promoting women in security and defense, an event called, organized by WISE France and WISE Canada. Uh, and so the event, which was a working launch, was around the, t- the theme of how these institutions and how these associations can
1: actually contribute the place of of women in international security. I felt really privileged to take part in the discussions and as is often the case at WISE events, the energy in the room was at a very high level and the discussions were really substantive. Uh, And I think what's important to underscore about WISE is that yes, there are a lot of discussions about the place of women in security and defense, but a lot of women that are part of of the network aren't necessarily experts on the topic of women in international security, but they happen to be women in the field of international security. So I wanted to use Uh, this observation uh, as a way to get you both to talk about your actual research interests and your area of expertise.
4: Yeah Stephanie you're absolutely right I mean our goal basically is to become superfluous because women would like to be seen as experts not as women experts so We're working towards becoming obsolete. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not going to be tomorrow. So what concerns my background? I um, specialize in Russia and Eastern European area studies uh, and strategic studies. And my main interest right now is on Russia and changing geopolitical environment in Europe and military cooperation among the big I'm doing the air quotes, uh, countries, uh, France, Germany and the United Kingdom in terms of defence cooperation.
5: In my case, I work as a defense scientist uh, for Defense Research and Development Canada, which is a research branch of the Department of National Defense. Uh, I have the opportunity to actually be embedded with the Canadian Armed Forces, where based on my research, I provide advice and support to strategic foresight, as well as direct operational support. At the moment, I'm actually working on a book project with the uh, U.S. Naval War College on the future of uh, naval power in the Arctic, with several partners from different Arctic states. Uh, which is really a great way to bring together experts in defense on the different aspects of Arctic security. In my role as a defense scientist, I'm also called upon commenting on gender um, and the role of women in security and defense Yes, because I'm a woman working in the, in the field of security, but also because of my expertise I've developed over the years through uh, WISE Canada.
1: While we're on the topic, you mentioned uh, Arctic research, which is quite prominent in, in Canada. And we all, each chapter has their own individual characteristics, almost a personality or a brand, <laughs> because WISE obviously evolves in different environments. And so I was wondering for WISE France, even though it's very early in the process still, do you see the Wise France brand emerging or something that's very particular about the French context? Well,
4: there is certainly something very particular about the French context, and that is that normally uh, France is supposed to be gender blind. So it's extremely counterintuitive wanting to discuss the role of women if you have. Liberté, Égalité and Fraternité emblazoned on every public building, so it should not be a topic. So that's what makes it extremely complicated to focus and zoom in on it. Perhaps that is why, why France was greeted with such enthusiasm, because finally somebody, maybe because it's American as a starting point, Donc, il a été permis de mettre le finger sur quelque chose qui est très topical
1: et important pour le débat national. Debate. Puisque nous sommes à Paris, on va parler quand même un peu français là. Euh, et j'ai une, une question pour euh, vous deux qui concerne euh, le futur de la coopération euh, entre West Canada et West France. Alors, comment est-ce que vous envisagez peut-être le développement de partenariat transatlantique comme celui qu'on vient de voir aujourd'hui? Euh, en fait, je pense que
5: c'est une excellente opportunité pour euh, WISE Canada qui est né à Montréal, mais qui, à travers les années, euh, a, a évolué tranquillement vers Kingston, puis ensuite euh, Toronto, de maintenir son caractère bilingue et son caractère francophone. Euh, et l'idée, en, en nous associant à WISE France, est vraiment de renforcer ce, cet aspect de West Canada, tout en contribuant euh, à une discussion transatlantique sur différents euh, sujets qui sont pertinents tant pour euh, le milieu de la sécurité au Canada que celui en France. Euh, on voit beaucoup de coopération dans, dans le milieu de la sécurité et de la défense euh, au Canada avec euh, les États-Unis ou les Five Eyes, mais je pense en fait que c'est, c'est vraiment une belle opportunité de rétablir le ou d'établir une conversation mmh. sur les questions de sécurité et de défense euh, avec la France euh, dans un, un contexte francophone. Oui, je
4: ne peux être qu'en violent accord avec elle sur ce sujet. Ce, ce partenariat et ses possibilités d'échange sont extrêmement importants pour WISE France et on est extrêmement reconnaissant aussi de, de, du soutien de l'ambassade du Canada dans ce contexte. Et ce qui est important, c'est d'avoir euh, cette possibilité de créer des relations euh, transatlantiques qui ne sont pas que anglophones, donc euh, je partage absolument euh, ce point de vue et en même temps, euh, d'utiliser quand même l'élément anglophone pour introduire euh, des, des corps un peu étrangers dans le débat national français.
1: Peut-être une autre question, euh, puisqu'on est dans, dans cette lancée-là, c'est pas toujours facile d'expliquer ce que ce que Wise France ou Wise Canada est. Comment est que vous faites pour, euh, comment est-ce que vous faites dans vos efforts de communication pour bien expliquer à vos interlocuteurs la mission de Wise
4: Alors nous, on se concentre surtout sur euh, la qualité euh, des, des politiques publiques. On est d'avis qu'on ne peut pas faire produire des, des bonnes politiques si on exclut les points de vue de, de, des personnes qui, qui, qui sont représentées dans la société. Donc il y a un enjeu de représentativité qui est directement lié avec l'aspect de, de, de la qualité du produit final, si on peut dire. Mais il y a aussi un autre euh, élément qu'on met en avant, c'est euh, l'élément des compétences, bien sûr. Donc il s'agit, dans le monde d'aujourd'hui, qui est quand même marqué par euh, un certain niveau de conflictualité, de ne pas se priver des ressources qui sont disponibles. Et, on le sait, il y a des femmes formidables qui sortent des universités, mais euh, de petit, si on regarde après, euh, on les trouve euh, exactement dans le même pourcentage euh, qu'on les a vus sur les bancs de l'université donc il y a une perte euh, des, des ressources et, et ceci euh, est un vrai enjeu de sécurité nationale.
5: WISE Canada est vraiment un réseau euh, national qui est dédié à appuyer les femmes euh, qui travaillent ou qui étudient dans le milieu de la sécurité et de la défense euh, à différents moments de leur carrière et donc euh, l'idée c'est vraiment de, de réunir les femmes Qui euh, du milieu académique, du, euh, du secteur gouvernemental ou du secteur privé, afin de créer une communauté de pratique et une communauté de soutien et d'appui euh, à travers les relations de mentorat et euh, le développement professionnel. Euh, pour ce faire, WISE Canada a en fait créer des chapitres dans différentes villes. Euh, soit sur des campus universitaires ou des chapitres communautaires afin de se rapprocher de ses membres et d'offrir aux membres euh, des services qui sont des activités qui, sont vraiment, qui, qui peuvent vraiment euh, adresser les, les besoins précis de certaines communautés. Et on espère vraiment de cette façon créer un, un réseau de soutien et un réseau d'appui où les, les femmes se reconnaissent Et peuvent trouver un espace euh, où elles peuvent partager en toute sécurité euh, leurs différentes leurs expertises, recevoir de l'appui et euh, aller de l'avant. Bien entendu, on n'est pas seulement réservé aux femmes, euh, on accueille les hommes et euh, on essaie de mettre de plus en plus l'accent sur la diversité euh, parce que dans le je pense que dans le contexte canadien, euh, on est un peu euh, au-delà de la, de la discussion euh, entre égalité hommes-femmes et on parle maintenant beaucoup plus de diversité
1: et d'inclusion. En fait, Euh, pour emprunter une expression à l'émission tout le monde en parle, c'est un peu ça la question qui tue. Exactement. Comment est-ce qu'on fait pour aborder cette question-là avec euh, les hommes?
4: Alors, c'est très intéressant que c'est les hommes qui viennent vers toi, donc c'est même pas toi qui dois apporter euh, mmh. cette question et, euh, on constate qu'il y a un réel intérêt parce que il y a, mine de rien, euh, un changement de génération. Donc je pense aussi bien pour les hommes et pour les femmes, c'est un scandale Que notre association existe parce que ça devrait pas être un sujet. Donc la question est pourquoi vous existez et on constate qu'il y a un vrai intérêt de s'engager personnellement. Donc je suis assez positive et optimiste mais on doit pas sous-estimer la pression du groupe masculin sur euh, les individus qui euh, se mettent en avant et qui sortent du rang. Donc, euh, il y a le concept d'allier qui, je pense, est très utile. Il faut encourager les hommes à devenir alliés, mais ça prend quand même encore beaucoup de courage et c'est là qu'on peut jouer, parce que tout homme veut devenir, veut paraître et être courageux. Donc, attrapons-les <rire> par par les clichés et ça peut être utilisé et ça peut fonctionner tout à fait euh, pour... pour bah, Pour créer un environnement qui euh, est beaucoup plus positif, aussi bien pour les hommes que pour les femmes.
1: Excellent, merci. Je prends des notes. <rire> euh, j'ai beaucoup apprécié la discussion. Merci à vous deux. C'était fascinant et la journée aussi qu'on a passée ici, euh, je trouve, était très riche. Hein. J'espère que ce ne sera pas la dernière fois qu'on aura l'occasion euh, de participer ensemble à un événement comme celui-ci. I switch back to English to thank you both for this special. Uh, segment of Battle Rhythm here at the uh, Canadian Embassy in Paris. Uh, Thank you and I look forward to more opportunities for Wise France and Wise Canada collaboration.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me and yes, yes, to more adventures. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie.
2: This summer, the Canadian Defense and Security Network is piloting a new summer institute at Carleton University. This is the first of its kind in Canada, and the goal is to provide a new cross sectoral professional development and networking opportunity for about twenty participants, including junior members of the Canadian Armed Forces, folks from across government, academia, and the media. The program will take place the week of august seventeenth to twenty first and will focus on Canada's defense policymaking processes, the threats facing Canada, the dynamics of Canadian civil military relations, the challenges of getting the best equipment and and of recruiting and retaining a diverse force. We will also look at the roles played by special operations and allies in Canadian defense and security. The week will also involve a strategic foresight exercise, as well as other innovative techniques to think about defense and security. A major priority will be to help members of each sector of the defense and security community understand the perspectives of those from other sectors. Please apply by March 15th at www.cdsn-rcds.com slash Summer Institute, or just Google CDSN Summer Institute. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.